0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming. Hello to everyone who's in the room, also watching online and watching the recording. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we are on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, land that was never ceded. I pay respects to elders past and present. Uh, My name is Dr. David Smith. I'm an Associate Professor at the US Studies Center and also in the Department the discipline of government and international relations in the School of Social and Political Science. And so it gives me huge pleasure to introduce not only a friend, but a colleague, uh, Christopher pepin to talk to you this afternoon about the relationship between presidents and sharks. Chris pepin is one of the great success stories of the formerly Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. He got his PhD with us in 2014, and has since joined us as an academic. He's now a senior lecturer in uh, public policy, one of our most valued and popular teachers, as I'm sure uh, many of you in the room know. Someone who is, well, highly in demand for guest lectures. I always get him to give guest lectures on methodology because he's always got the most interesting ways of uh, finding things out. Now, prior to his life as an academic, Chris was a lobbyist. The term lobbyist like shark doesn't always have positive connotations, but Chris was one of the good lobbyists. Okay, Chris's lobbying played a major role in overthrowing the homophobic don't ask, don't tell requirement in the U.S. military. Um, Chris has written books about both of these topics. So in 2019, the book based on his dissertation, Flaws, Shark Bites and Emotional Public Policymaking. Uh, was released. That was described by Rodney Smith, who is the head of School of Social and Political Sciences, as the best example he had ever seen of a thesis being turned into a book. I highly recommend it. It was also, I've got to say, the greatest book launch I've ever been to. It was held at Sydney Aquarium. And uh, while while Chris was talking, there was this turtle going up and down, uh, I remember. Uh, in 2021, Um, He released uh, LGBTQ Lobbying in the United States, uh, published by Taylor and Francis Limited. Um, Just uh, before I hand over to Chris, I was uh, talking with him beforehand. Uh, We we share a favourite painting or one of our favourite paintings. Um, It is by uh, John Singleton Copley and it's called Watson and the Shark. It was painted in 1778. You can see a version of it in the National Gallery in Washington DC, but there's a much darker and scarier version of it in the Detroit Institute of Art, uh, which is where I first saw it. So it dramatizes a shark attack in Havana Harbor um, in the 1770s. And uh, one of the things that this painting reminds me is the cultural obsession with sharks goes back a very, very long way. And the representation of sharks as kind of the scariest thing possible, that didn't begin with Jaws, it didn't begin with Shark Week. Uh, it began a very long time ago. It basically uh, began when humans were able to represent uh, sharks. Now, to look at the very unique relationship between sharks and US presidents, because I've spoken long enough, I will now hand over to Christopher Pepin-Neff.
1: Thank you so much, David. Um, So, David, uh, if I can just speak his praises for just a couple of seconds, was so generous. I said um, that I had an article that had come out in the Washington Post about the role of sharks and presidents, and I said to David, you know, would it be possible to do a talk at the US study center? And he sort of jumped and said, "You know, I'll do whatever I can to make this happen. And so today is really a testament to, to his work and effort. And so thank you very much, David. Um, American presidents are apex politicians. They cruise the primaries looking for opportunities to nibble the competition. They lurk in the shallows of a debate for the moment to strike, and then they attack. Like, uh, there you go again, or I will not make age an issue in this campaign, um, where we saw President Reagan use discourse to command a room and slip beneath the surface. American presidents also use their skills and abilities to be seen as unique heroes in society. But for every hero, there is a villain. And in many cases throughout history, sharks have provided a foil for American presidents to gain acclaim. Sharks represent a certain type of ungovernable problem as illustrated by the noted author uh, Neff 2015 (laughs) in the article, Jaws Effect, where there is perceived intent when shark bites occur, right? You think the shark meant to bite the person which is different than perceptions that exist around other accidents in nature. For instance, there's been no government war on lightning, even though lightning strikes accounted for 11 fatalities and 69 injuries in 2021. Do you know how many shark fatalities there were in 2021 in the United States? One. How about 2020? Three. Holly 2016 notes that there are documented total of 4,101 lightning-related fatalities per year around the world. 4,101 around the world for lightning-related fatalities. So sharks really do present an unique problem in society, one that is not particularly large. So the focus of this analysis is on presidents because it's they who motivate the political narrative. Don't worry, there'll be plenty of shark stories. Um, But as a result, the research question driving this study is how does the relationship between sharks and presidents advance the office of the president? How do we make our heroes? What if this was a story about the way presidents use sharks to make themselves the hero of their own story? That would be quite a profound statement and someone could make such an argument in 13 minutes or less and then be followed by a Q&A. Um, I'm gonna argue that hero making occurs in three ways. Presidents attack sharks. Presidents use sharks to build a masculine persona and presidents use sharks as an indisputable test of character. Cohen, Langdon and Riches, 2017 note that heroes are valued across cultures and throughout history. They define hero as a person who knowingly and voluntarily acts for good for one or more people at significant risk to self. So this concept of significant risk to self becomes a linchpin, right, of you being a hero. For you to be a hero, there needs to be an element of risk. The most important fact in this talk is that there is something special within the human cognitive framework about sharks and shark bites that makes that triggers our risk and makes them an accessible device for presidents in search of an instant enemy. The leader of the free world can fish for anything. George Washington fished for sharks. Teddy Roosevelt. Fish for sharks. Franklin Roosevelt, fished for sharks. JFK, sharks. Woodrow Wilson, sharks. Trump, sharks. Sharks are central casting as the evil villains of the story. Oh, this is where really sir. <laughs> sharks are an advantageous problem politically. The issue here is a perception of how disproportionately bad sharks are. It used to be said that a good shark is a dead shark. Indeed, shark bites occupy a disproportionate amount of space in the American psyche. This concept known as probability neglect that Sunstein and others talk about. And it's the idea that something happens a lot when really it's quite rare, but because of its, the the availability with which it comes to mind, you think it happens more often. So we see here at the last, once again, Neff 2015 states that the Jaws effect functions as a blame casting device that informs causal stories. And this can be seen in the way sharks have been maligned by presidents. And this occurred since the start of the American experiment. For instance, some presidents were simple observers like George Washington. Let's see, there's George Washington. George Washington, who recorded sailors taking on board sharks in 1751 during his expedition to Barbados. George Washington writes here in this journal article, in, in, the, in his journal in 1751, sharks, the fish from its peculiarly formed jaw and teeth is also called a dogfish. Some of the species are harmless to man, but others are particularly ferocious and dangerous. They are numerous and found in all parts of the sea and along the shore. That's George Washington in 1751. This is the point that David made. That's 270 years ago. And um, and we're talking about how dangerous sharks are found along the shores of the coast from George Washington. Others were more active, like the famous New Jersey Fatal Shark Bites in 1916, that drew the attention of President Woodrow Wilson. Sorry about that, I'm out of order. Um, Woodrow Wilson in 1916, whose shark bite incidents made it onto his war cabinet agenda. So we're in the middle of World War I and there were a series of shark bite fatalities in New Jersey. And this is gonna make it onto the war cabinet agenda and he's gonna deploy the Coast Guard to go and kill the sharks. There were no sharks to be, I mean, there was a shark that was eventually killed, but, <laughs> but, but the Coast Guard didn't find any. They were gonna dredge the river and send the Coast Guard in to do this and whatnot. This was the first what we called uh, tough on sharks presidency. And then there's President Nixon. Let me just look and see if I have a picture of President Nixon. Ah, President Nixon. Um, who was asked the Secret Service in 1969 to install shark nets around his house in Florida, in Biscayne Bay, uh, Key Biscayne, Florida, for anyone who knows the area, out of fear of the fish. A government report stated, the Navy has installed and maintained at the request of the Secret Service, a shark net in Biscayne Bay to protect the president while swimming there. Indeed, so profound is the foil of the shark to the presidency that presidents circle the sharks to create a moment of opportunity, a chance to attack. Former President Donald Trump declared an informal war on sharks. This is 2013, but he declared an informal war on sharks in 2018 stating, I'm not a big fan of sharks either. I don't know how many votes I'm gonna lose. Uh, I have people calling me up, sir, we wanted to have a fund to uh, save the shark. It's called save the shark. I say, no, thank you. I have other things I can contribute to. This in 2018 as president of the United States, right? It's not just tweeting in 2013, a random tweet about I hate sharks they're losers, <laughs> right? This is the sitting president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, the sitting president of the United States, F- FDR, also, we'll get to it in a second, a sitting president of the United States. So, like a villain needs a hero, so too does an emotional issue require an emotional catharsis. Sorry, I am terribly, I've, I've done, the, oh, there we go. Emotional catharsis. In this way, only a certain type of solution. Only Remember, sharks are a certain type of problem, so it can only be solved by a certain type of solution. And the answer is if sharks are the problem, hegemonic, heroic masculinity is the solution. Like most problems in the world, remember this issue was around risk, a risky situation. And we are gonna confront this risky situation head on, right? I say this as a non-binary person, man to man. Um, So hegemonic masculinity, uh, Raywin Connell, 2005, is noted as the pattern of practice, i.e. things done, not just in a set of expectations and identity that allow for men's domination over women to continue, but also it exemplifies the currently most honored way of being a man. It required all other men to position themselves in relation to it, and it ideologically legitimized the global subordination of women to men. What am I saying? The utilization and demonization of sharks by presidents furthers an agenda where the core elements of masculinity are seen to provide superiority over nature's most powerful and ruthless foe. The masculine superiority is seen as evidence of one man's superiority over other men, but more importantly, men's superiority over women. Sharks are a device to establish the masculine superiority and exceptionalism of an individual, to create a hero and to establish the qualifications for being considered the most powerful person in the world. In addition to this, you didn't think we were gonna go here, did you? In addition, it's at this stage of the analysis, we are reminded that sharks often constitute a manufactured crisis that's being responded to to a preemptive tragedy to be overcome, an entirely constructed perception of masculinity, which is performed in ways that provide cultural relief and catharsis. We see evidence of this, one second, I'm gonna find. We see evidence of this with, with President Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders, right? There were Rough Riders. What made them rough? That they went through uh, the Spanish-American war, that they went through the swamps, through shark-infested swamps. That's part of what made them rough, was that he faced this risk, that he created a hero dimension to his personality by going through shark-infested waters. Or the story of Franklin Roosevelt fighting a 235, where is it, fight, fighting a 235-pound shark for 90 minutes, and landing him in 1938. This asked, of masculine aggression was particularly powerful given that he was living with a disability following his diagnosis of polio in 1921. In addition, John F. Kennedy famously swam through shark-infested waters in 1943 following the downing of PT-109 during World War II. So that's John F. Kennedy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, Donald Trump, right, (laughs) which is not, the usual sentence, <laughs> um, but importantly, the facts behind these narratives are not, in. Que- I just wanna be clear that the facts are not in question behind these narratives. I'm not questioning Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt or John Kennedy as heroes. The research question is what is it about these interactions with sharks that provides the cultural purpose, purchase and political capital that contributed to their legends that help build their hero status. So finally, I just wanna note in just a minute or two that there is an interplay between sharks and presidents that is seen as an ultimate test that reveals the presidential character, right? Presidential character is like a thing. It's like a qualitative thing. Does this person, can they hold presidential character? And um, it, it, Presidential character includes the ability to make difficult choices, to make tough decisions, to display honesty, theoretically, and to rise above adversity, right? Those those would be idealized. And James Barber published a well-known study on a presidential character in which he studied personalities to predict presidential performance. Barber believed that presidents can be characterized as positive or negative and active or passive. His findings indicate that positive active presidents were people like FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, and there were other people who were seen as less successful. So in conclusion, there are three features that come to mind within this examination. First, that sharks are just fish. Second, fish cast very few votes. (laughs) And they might win even fewer elections. But what I've attempted to articulate is a nearly 300 year history between American presidents and sharks, where the president is the attacker. Presidents have manufactured crises related to sharks to show their masculinity and promote their status as heroes. Here, sharks are used as a device to build a narrative of masculine superiority and where the interaction with a shark is seen as a sign of authenticity in character building. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, Thanks very much, Chris. Please come and uh, take a seat over here. And now we're going to collectively interrogate you. Um, I have enough questions on my own to last an hour or so, but I would like to, just open it up to the floor. Um, uh, what questions do people have? If you don't have any, I will start my uh, barrage of questions. That's my thread.
1: Um, the genesis for making the connection. Um, I kept bumping into these stories just in the course of, it's actually in the introduction of the book flaws, shark bites, and emotion on public policymaking. And at the very beginning of the book, um, oh, and this is for someone in the audience. Maybe the person who asked the first question gets the book. Is that maybe the rule? Um, but yes, I, I pre-signed. Uh, but, but, the, uh, but the point is that that there, it pops up in history and no one has ever looked at this. This is the first talk of its kind anywhere in the world. And Um, it just um, it like I have 10 stories there's only how many presidents are 40
0: 46
1: 46 presidents and 10 of them have shark stories that's 25 I mean that's a lot of shark stories for presidents Um, I don't know how many how many have bald eagle stories but (laughs) that's a lot of shark stories good question
2: One of your presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, has like a
0: famous bear story
2: Hmm.
0: where I might be getting it wrong, but refused to like shoot a cub and his image was softened or maybe his masculine credentials were heightened. Is there any room for um, sympathy towards the shark as the shark's image softens with conservation efforts for presidents to boost their credentials by not uh, killing a shark?
1: Can I, do you mind if I show another slide? Not at all. So I've got three slides here that we didn't get to because I was leaving them for questions, right? We've got Barack Obama, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush, all three of which are sort of noted. And really the first one was H.W. Bush, deserves the most credit if we're giving proper credit for like marine sanctuary work and shark uh, saving and things like that. And the, so the question is, is there is there room for softening um, of the, I mean, here's the problem. The problem is that I might argue, I might, I'm still working on it, that that the hero image has made it even better, right? H.W. Bush a statesman, right? He supported the, the terrible shark and supported it even though it's terrible. Right, that's that's kind of statesman he is. Like the pro shark, you know, supporting statesman. And that's also creating a hero image that is also sort of to a certain degree based on masculinization of uh, respect for, you know, predatory, you know, I, I respect the strong wildlife. So I I'm not sure it's conceivable that this is, a slightly even more evil um, <laughs> answer to the question, right? Than, than admitting that I don't like sharks and I don't like them and you can like them if you want to, but, but they're not my cup of tea, um, which some people would say. So I think it can go both ways. But I think it's even in the good cases I, where they're saving sharks, I think they're still building an identity uh, that is heroic.
0: Before we get on to the next question, I'd just like to um, add something to this question, which is uh, our colleague, Charlotte Epstein, wrote a book back in 2008 about whales. We are really the marine life politics department, Uh, large marine life politics uh, politics department. And she was looking at the global decline of the whaling industry. Mm -hmm. And she argued that it was because whales came to be seen in a fundamentally different way. And one of the major... Um, reasons for that was the advent of water parks like SeaWorld, uh, where the whale was transformed into this, from this big mysterious floating source of oil to this cute thing that did tricks for humans. And she was saying that the whale toy industry, was those little toy killer whales that came out of San Diego, were particularly important for the way that the image of the whale Uh, changed until whales came to be seen as synonymous with the environment itself and looking after the um, environment. Now, I did notice you've got a picture of Barack Obama with a toy shark there. But um, do sharks suffer from not being as, for what, one of the better word, toyetic as uh, as other animals?
1: In conservation psychology, it's called uh, charismatic megafauna. Mm. So... That the, the large, stuffy, fluffy animals that you can that you want to hug, right? You want to you 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 want to buy the yes? Sharks um, suffer from their, um, In my book, I also talk about it's. There's an eye flicker test mm. that you can perform with um, with babies and primates, um, and, and it came out identical. That sharks were just scarier. Hmm. That the the dead eyes and the the glossy skin and the you know the the gums porous, always get
0: yeah. The, yeah,
1: exactly. The and the teeth and the whole thing. I mean, it's not as warm and fuzzy as you know other animals are.
0: Hmm. Yes. Um. I think there was another question over here. Um, I was just wondering that, like, how would you apply this to the Australian context where sharks are such a sort of stereotypical part of the international image of the country
1: mm-hmm. I mean you so I'll be interested to hear what David has to say about this as well like I mean I would I was talking uh, this afternoon about Colin Barnett uh, who had a tough on sharks uh, he was the Western Australia premier for like a decade and he had a and he also represented Cottleslow. if anyone does anyone here from WA yeah, RWA, a, little, <laughs> a, little. a little bit. And and Cottleslow Beach is sort of like the Bondi of WA. That's a terrible sentence, but I'm <laughs> gonna should, go should with go. it. Um, but but for our our audience. And um it's it's uh again a charismatic beach. And um in Colin Burnett represented that constituency that was local to it and was virulently anti-shark and then became premier of the state of Western Australia and took that to a statewide agenda. Um, And so, and and used to get the hooks and go kill the shark and hunt the shark and we're gonna dominate nature and very, very on point with sort of a heroic, hegemonic, masculine picture. Um, And can I tell one sorry, super hey, super fast story? Yes, does everyone know why Australia has um one of one of the reasons what so there are two stories I would share about Australia's relationship with sharks. The first is in Aboriginal carvings um in Manly the um there are carvings of, uh, sharks and large fish, but it's It's believed that we're dealing with sharks. And um, there are, the point that's being conveyed by the carving is that there is danger coming to sh- the coast. And the shark was representative of colonists and settlers. And that was part of the way that they were communicating the, the degree of threat. So that dates back to the first fleet. Then the second I would note is that on the first fleet, do you know where this idea that Australia was a crazy country and it it was surrounded by all of the crazy animals like sharks and snakes and spiders and things? Do you know where that came from originally? From the penalists. It was um, Sturma, 1985, wrote a book on uh, how when the first fleet were coming over and the convicts and other people were coming over, they were in order to get them to try to not escape from Sydney or from wherever they were um, botany and from wherever they were, they were told these stories about Australia as a land of the most um, dangerous sharks, man-eating sharks that will come up and get you. And um, so that was one of the reasons why they, um, had, well, why they made swimming illegal in um, the at the turn of the of the 19th century was because there was a belief that 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 that, uh, that the ocean was filled with sharks. So anyway, so there's that's a, that was a lot of information, <laughs> um, but. But anyway, that's that's sort of, that's my take on Australia.
0: Yeah, look, when, when I was at the University of Michigan, um, Americans would constantly come up to me and say, I really want to visit Australia, but there are so many things there that can kill you. I'd be like, Detroit had 600 homicides last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, it is the, the social construction of Australia as a fundamentally dangerous place because of mm-hmm. uh, all, all of its wildlife. Um, yeah, we take that as a natural fact. Mm-hmm. rather than you know the the overwhelming majority of people who die in snake bites in the world die in the Indian subcontinent mm-hmm. uh there you know it's it's been something like 50 years since anyone died of a spider bite uh, in um you know in Australia uh yes occasionally someone gets killed by a cassowary but seriously if you're stupid enough to go up to one of those things in the first place and try to interact with it, you know, maybe that's just, uh, maybe that's just evolution taking its course. Um, are there any other questions? Because I've got a few uh, kind of questions and observations I would like to, so, okay, okay. I'm gonna um, okay. Uh, ask you a few things here. Um, the first thing is okay. From an international relations point of view, and this comes back to this point about Australia is one of the PR problems that sharks have that they are creatures of no nation. right So you know humans are land-based animals. Every animal in the world is associated with some kind of country, and including the, a lot of the really dangerous ones, they take on this totemic significance because they are associated uh, with you know with a country um, You know, even the rattlesnake, Mm
2: -hmm. right? The
0: goddamn rattlesnake becomes this symbol of American independence and orneriness Mm -hmm. uh, during the American uh, Revolution. You're far more likely to, you know, have a negative encounter with a rattlesnake than with a shark. Um, And is part of the problem here that sharks are creatures of no nation? These predators that come out of this primeval space called the sea that isn't really controlled by anybody um uh, that yeah so they're they're really out of human political space
1: that's a really interesting observation it's a really good question and i have a reasonable answer okay um endemic in again conservation psychology uh endemic value the level of pride you have in the tasmanian devil Mm -hmm. even though it's a really Sort of hideous-looking little creature, <laughs> right? It's still Tasmanian. It's our Tasmanian devil, right? And they make cartoons out of it, and it gets it gets like fun little things. So, um, I um, did a survey in uh, South Africa uh, before and after a shark bite, and which is very difficult to do by the way figuring out when a shark is going to bite someone is very hard um and i what i did is i surveyed um the people in cape town and i said who are along a beach community and i said how much pride do you have in the local shark population so these are your sharks so this is a test of endemic value this is david's question right do sharks suffer from an issue because people don't because their sharks are also i'm going to use one other word are you ready pelagic so they, they follow, they go sh- gray white sharks are pelagic. They go all over the world. Then sharks might swim to Hawaii and back, right? Um, so it, when you have um, pelagic species, it's very difficult to attain endemic value with them. But you do also, I'm gonna give you one other word. ready? An aggregation point. So, there are certain areas where sharks act Neptune Islands in South Australia. For anyone here who's from South Australia, um, uh, anyone here from South Australia? Look, I partly grew up in South Australia. Did you Australia. okay? okay.
0: I was it, I think there was this perverse pride in like 85% of shark bites happen in South Australia, yeah. but that's because we had so little else to cling to.
1: Makai Mac- well, uh, Diva,
0: yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, and, and also there was this huge pride in. We are the driest state on the driest continent and our water looks and tastes like mud. Um,
1: so I did the survey, how much pride do you have in the local shark population before a shark bite? And then I did it after a shark bite, immediately after, like I flew back to Australia, to South Africa. What do you think happened? To go up or to go down? Matt says it went up. It stayed the same. So the influence the of the shark bite did not decrease the local endemic pride mm. people had about the local shark population. Um, what did affect it was that there was a seal that was involved as well in this particular incident, and seals took a nosedive because they were seen to be luring the sharks in. People didn't blame the sea, the shark; they blamed the seal. <laughs> so it's so it uh, so it's. But, but generally speaking, it is harder when you don't have a political affiliation, like when you're not tied to, although people often say to me, you know, sharks all vote green. Um, like, because I'll say, I do the politics of shark attacks and they say, how do they vote? And I said, they vote green. Anyway, sorry.
0: Okay, now sticking on an international um, relations point, and this sort of comes back to the the messages that the presidents were trying to transmit, I mean, how much does this relate to a very kind of bleak view of international relationships, that the world is basically full of predators and prey, mm. right? And essentially, you want to be a predator. I mean, predatoriness is really valued in American political yeah. culture uh, to the extent the weapons that kill people are openly referred to as predator drones. Like, yeah. our, our predator drones are doing a great job. Um, uh, how much of it is yeah this idea that well sharks because they're the biggest predator out there in nature um not only am i more of a man if i can kill a shark but i'm actually the ultimate predator
1: that's right i think that's a great uh sort of snapshot of the of hopefully the point that everyone will take away from here is that um that i mean what did i say presidents attack, right? That was almost the title of the thing, when presidents attack comma sharks, right? <laughs> like that being on the offensive and there are a number of different ways in which you can be like, I mean, so shark infested waters, can I, can I give you a little tip as someone who's spent 13 years, 16 years? On uh, shark bites, um, if the waters are really shark infested, mm. you're not writing about it afterwards, mm. right? Like all of these stories of they swam through shark infested waters and you know the things like that. You your your story is different. <laughs> the story is a different one. So, um, but I do think that that you're absolutely right that that president's attack.
0: Right. Okay. Um, Something else I'd like to address is, there's in some ways a deep bias against animals that goes back to the beginning of Western political theory, Mm -hmm. right? So Aristotle said, basically humans are political animals because we can speak and therefore we have to justify our actions to each other. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us political. This is something that no other animal, actually does now i think aristotle did have a significant point but that also inaugurated a real sense that animals weren't really worth considering at all mm. and in fact a lot of philosophers went a lot further than aristotle had gone and they basically said animals don't really think animals just respond to uh you know to stimuli mm. they're not uh they're not they're not intentional. Um, animals at all. Okay, so I find this really kind of fascinating paradox around sharks and also other predatory animals, where on the one hand, there's this sense that part of the reason why they're so dangerous is because they are just responding to, uh, you know, to stimuli, blood in the water um, with sharks. And yet, on the other hand, we also hold them responsible for uh, accidents, incidents, uh, bites. We hold them responsible as if they could be adjudicated by human standards mm-hmm. of, uh, of in- intentionality. Um, I mean, how do we resolve that?
1: So I did a study with Tom Winter at uh, Sydney Aquarium and we walked 800 people Through the shark tunnel. Okay, you know what my ethics application looked like. It was (laughs) eight hundred people went through the shark tunnel, and we asked them one. Well, we asked them two questions. One, uh, how much? What level? What's your level of fear of sharks before and after? And then there was one test question. Do you think the shark is looking at you? Because we wanted to test this question of intentionality. Guess how much, uh, what's gonna happen? Uh, I think the shark sees me. Do you think the shark's looking at you? What? What's? What, do you think the shark's looking at you? The shark is looking at them? And is my level of fear gonna go up or go down? It's gonna go up. So that's true. For people who didn't that that's that's true, and I'm gonna get to it in 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 10 more seconds. For if I don't think the shark is looking at me, what happens to my level of fear? Goes down by 26%. So we know that we can if we eliminate this issue of intentionality, right? This conflict within a species that we wanna judge, but also condemn. But I can prove to you, I can provide a statistical model, a quantitative way to reduce fear of sharks, which is to reduce the degree of intentionality. And how do I do that in my research? I do it by saying, stop calling them shark attacks because 40% of reported shark attacks have no injury. Did people know that? 40% of reported shark attacks have no injury. There was an incident in South Australia last week. The shark attack, right? How badly was was the person bitten? What's the person bitten? The person wasn't bitten. The kayak was bitten. Kayak is very serious condition, but the person wasn't bitten, person wasn't injured. And this was called the shark attack, part of the 40%. And so when you call it an attack, you create a model of intentionality that David's talking about that depresses support for sharks. And, uh, and that is from an evolutionary biological point of view, intentionality wins. Um, De- Deborah Stone would say the same thing, causal stories say the same thing, right? If you have a choice between accident and intent, people say it's intentional. Did the tree fall on your house by accident or did your neighbor, were they were, the, the, were the mowing around it and hit it by accident? And it, oh, I've got a story, I've got a conspiracy theory for you. Oh, uh, that tree that you saw, that wasn't windy, that wasn't bad roots, that was my neighbor. And so it's the same thing with the eyes, it's the same thing with intentionality.
0: Um, Let's talk about the media. Mm. Right. So um, yesterday, there was, it, it. it seemed like Christmas for the media yesterday when there was, a very minor lion escape. Mm. (laughs) Okay, so this was the first thing I saw when I woke up. Yeah, apparently at around 6.30 in the morning, four lions, five lions, four of them cubs, Mm -hmm. somehow got out of their enclosure. Mm. Now, they they were still enclosed. They were behind a six metre fence that Mm. keeps them apart from the rest of the zoo. They were apparently just kind of standing around. Mm. Uh, like, I can imagine my cats doing this. Uh, they, these lions, if anything, are lazier than my cats. Like, I've seen these lions many times, but I've never seen one of them standing up before. So, the, you know, this must be an early morning thing. Uh, and apparently they just sort of drifted back into their enclosure. Mm-hmm. One cub had to be tranquilized or something. Um, but the, the media coverage of this, finding the families who had been on the roar and snore adventure mm-hmm. and getting them to describe their panic as I woken up and herded into an enclosure. And, you know, they did manage to get some father saying, oh, yeah, I feared for my life, you know, if we, you know, what could mm-hmm. happen if we encounter a lion? Of course, these are the best fed lions in the world. I don't mm-hmm. think they're going to, yeah, eat you. When I walked into a bottle shop last night at about 6 o'clock. The discourse is still going on. And, in fact, someone was saying on a talkback radio show, yeah, we've got to remember, this is a suburban zoo. This is really close to Mossman. families could have been in danger Mm -hmm. um now okay so i suppose in some sense we've got to expect the media to make hay out of something that is as unusual as lions escaping even if they uh didn't escape but you have been called on by the media now for about 10 years to talk about um sharks like every time there's a major shark incident you get called on Has the media actually got any better at covering this?
1: Yes. Wow. Yes, it has. Um, So there's two things I would say about it. There's a recent uh, journal article in the Journal of Biology um, from me um, (laughs) um, that analyzed New York Times reporting and what language they use? Like, how many times does New York Times say shark attack in 2022 compared to what it said in 2015? Right. So I looked at 10 years of data. Uh, 2012. I looked at 10 years of data, and it and the slope goes like this. Shark bite goes like this. Shark attack goes like or shark attack goes like this is flat, and shark bite is is going up, and, um, and I've seen it. Uh, countless times, I saw it, um, I mean, I, I saw it just this week on the ABC that media reporting is getting better. The, the issue that is still problematic is that um, it's variable, it's a variable depending on how bad the incident is, right? If we were talking about, so you say, Chris, how bad is the media? I say they're better, uh, a 12 year old girl, gets taken tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That shark is dead. right? The shark is dead. the media is the media is gonna go crazy. Um, you know, like it, it's all gonna it's all gonna come apart. It, it, now one of the analyses that I did in mine was a media analysis of causal in my book on Cape Town and on people who were perceived to be poachers black poachers, black South African poachers, who were, it was argued that they sort of, well, they didn't, they, they got what they deserved. They shouldn't have been poaching. And then when it was white girls, it was um, uh, sharks are a menace and they should all be wiped off the face of the earth. And so there's like what, what I would call these high emotion, um, low threshold issues where you end up in a situation where it's dependent upon the the characteristics of the incident who, who not just who was involved but but what happened and where are they from mm-hmm. like when when and how quickly can their family be notified mm-hmm. when George Wainwright in Rottenest Island, I don't know if anyone ever remembers this story, but in Rottenest Island there was a, a a really bad incident where um, a gentleman was bitten by a grey white shark, and um, the, his he was American, so his family didn't have time in South Australia. When you had incidents that happened in South Australia, the family would come out and say, "Don't kill the shark." Well, because of the time zones, the family weren't even notified, so they couldn't say anything. And they their their position was, "Don't kill the shark." Well, they didn't uh, they didn't find out, so. By the time they found out, they had already gone out to kill the shark. And um, so like there's things like time zones that are involved in media reporting and how that influences responses. So, I mean, it's a very, these incidents are so complex. Like I'm always cautious when I do media to sort of like do no harm, right? It's a setup, right? It's, it's a setup. Me going on and, t- and saying um, I'm here, they're going to say this pro shark shark hugger is <laughs> on and is doing a thing. So you've got to know that going in. And at some point, I I say to people, "Oh, sorry, sorry shut up." Right, but going. but you know, lying to the public about shark behavior or about political behavior um, is makes people more less safe, mm-hmm. right? If you want to make people less safe at the beach lie to them about what the dangers are and what will make you safe and what will not make you safe and then send them out into the wild, right? The beach is the wild, the ocean is the wild Mm. and the government fills these convenient stories and then sends people out.
2: Hmm. Please. One second. We'll just uh, get the microphone over. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks.
1: Chris, in looking at the relationship between the shark and the American president and how they use that then to portray heroism and dominance, have you drawn any comparison with other heads of state? Is there something culturally different with the states that means that they do draw on that? I mean, not just with sharks. Like, Are there other comparisons internationally when you're looking at this issue where heads of states are trying to portray that image through nature, not necessarily the shark. I'm sure there are. I'm not aware of any though. I'm still in early days in this particular analysis. But- And it's fascinating and that's- But but, I mean, that's why I threw in the quote from um, Cohen et al about like the definition of a hero, Mm -hmm. right? Because what are like the, and it was the risk, right? So you need to create a condition of risk. And I'm sure that there's international comparisons that can be made.
0: Yeah, I mean, nothing actually quite springs to mind. Not that I know the animal politics of every country. But, um, you know, apart from Jair Bolsonaro, who seemed to view the entire Amazon rainforest as an existential threat that had to be killed, um, there aren't so many examples. In Once again, looking at land-based um, predatory animals, these are viewed as national treasures. Mm-hmm. um in the you know in the places with the biggest land-based predators in sub-Saharan Africa, there are major national efforts to you know to protect them from the bigger predator, which is uh, you know which is hunters. Yeah. um often militarised efforts, lethal effort, you know efforts that involve uh, people getting killed in the service of um, in the service of protecting these animals. And I think that there you know one thing that I've read about is countries often see their animals as ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Um, so for you know China, the panda has immense um, international relations significance mm-hmm. to the extent that pandas were directly involved in the first diplomacy between the People's Republic of China and the United States. In 1972, pandas were um, gifts. Uh, China is now often withdrawing pandas, uh, you know, it's carried in the stick. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm actually not, I, I can't think of any other leader of a country, at least in modern times, as being like, I am going to prove myself by going out and killing an animal. Um, a part, now, part of it is also, the U.S. has an immense hunting and fishing culture, which is, I think, quite unlike mm-hmm. um, anything, anything anywhere else. I mean, I think Canada's is fairly similar, but the, the U.S. is really unique. So um, every year, 12 million people go out and hunt mm-hmm. uh, during hunting season. 33 million people go and fish. Uh, in in the united states
1: so these are
0: massive massive industries that are a real a real part of the national psyche
1: and there are birders right anybody here a birder like like bird watching in america is (laughs) the is like huge Hmm. anyway
0: yeah yeah now in uh in in australia we've got our own hunting cultures but it's mainly around rural pest control um (laughs) yeah so it's it's, it's not the same. And, I mean, you know, as we've been talking about, part of the appeal of killing the predator is, uh, yeah, that you're becoming the bigger predator, where I don't think people really get that same sense if they're shooting a vegetarian, mm. um, you know, animal of of some kind uh, or, you know, the ridiculous aristocratic practice of sending your dogs out to go and hunt a fox. Like, mm. um, Yes, I think that in some senses, the, it's the uniqueness of that American hunting and fishing culture that actually, um, you know, obviously there's hunting and fishing all around the world, but as a massive leisure industry uh, in the US, I think that's one of the things that feeds into the fact that politicians identify themselves with the people uh, by actually doing this. Uh,
2: other questions? Yes. Um, I was wondering, kind of related to your book title Flaws, related to Jaws, what's the um, role of pop culture and like building on that fear with like sharks and like seeing them as playing on human fear and like the predator sense with that? I don't watch horror movies, but, you know, even with them as is.
1: Um, So I, Jaws, there are two responses. One is Jaws inspired millions of people to do... Shark research and um, to become, you know, sort of shark biologists. And the other is that it changed federal law in 1986 to change sharks to be what's considered waste fish, um, which changed their status at fisheries along the East Coast of the United States and, and the Atlantic and led to sort of wiping out shark populations. So that's a direct relationship with Jaws, which is sort of similar to, I don't know if anyone else has ever seen like the China Syndrome or um, War Games or like Jaws is in, these are other movies that influence public policy, um, whether it was around computer crime or um, nuclear um, meltdown. So, um, but but, movies are, you know, the most important communicative tool that you often, that, you know, people can't, you know, don't, they're not going to meet a shark. They're never going to see a shark. They're going to see it on TV or they're going to see it in a movie. And that's the relationship with the shark. And so it has a powerful, um, it has a powerful influence that you know, in mediating that is really, really difficult. I worked on a, sorry, in 10 seconds or less, I worked on a documentary here in Sydney Harbor called Shark Harbor for the ABC. And then when it got shipped to United States, they changed the title to Killer Shark Invasion. (laughs) So there you go. And it was about tagging bull sharks in Sydney Harbor, right? Which we all, we're all sort of across, but in America it's called Killer Shark Invasion.
2: Culture. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, with, back on the
1: journalist thing, she, you said shark bite instead of shark attack. I did. Would that be your sort of go to term or should it depend on the situation? So there are four terms that the literature, which is me, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry again. I apologize profusely, but the, the literature suggests shark uh, sightings, which is just when you see a shark, which is often called an attack, like a shark circles your boat, a shark swims around your boat, that's a shark sighting. A shark uh, bumps your kayak or takes a bite out of your kayak. But again, not you, did not know you're in the kayak. Sharks don't know you're in there. They're not, they can't see you through the kayak. So that's a shark encounter. So again, non, two non-injurious events. Then you've got shark bite and fatal shark bite. The, and I'm not trying to negate the, the tragic nature of fatal shark bites at all. Um, if, I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to create a level of proportionality relative to what we're dealing with. So a shark attack on this kayak, right? In South Australia last week, is different than someone who lost a leg. I mean, they're calling it, and the media are calling it the same thing. And I think that does a disservice to people who, who've been really gravely
2: injured. Um, any other questions? Ariel. I
0: have a somewhat facetious question. Um, can you comment on dolphin politics? and whether they provide like the hero narrative or even killer whales as predators of
1: sharks. So, I mean, I have a very low opinion of dolphins. So, which is, I mean, they're, they. they sorry. Uh, overrated. Overrated. Um, but the issue with um, orcas and as, uh, Predating on great white sharks is really quite fascinating. And in the literature, does everyone know this that they swim around um, a pod of orca will will follow um, uh, great white sharks as low as a thousand meters and um, or a thousand feet, and um, and they found a tracker. So um, a uh, they had a tracker that they put on a shark and the shark was eaten by an orca by killer whale. And then the orca pooped it out and it floated and they were able to trace it and track it and see the orca fighting with the shark on the little camera. And um, so it's a very interesting relationship. I mean, they, they are the apex predator of the ocean orcas are Vastly superior, and sharks—they—they they eat uh, shark liver, which tastes like chocolate to an orca. So, if anyone wants to leave here tonight with a little, this is all really dinner conversation uh, <laughs> that I'm trying to to throw your way. So that's what I would say. I don't know if that's helpful.
0: I am um, just before we uh, finish up. I'd like to m- mention what I think is the greatest shark moment in pop culture history which was on February 1st, 2015, the Super Bowl halftime show. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Featuring Katy Perry, surrounded by dancing sharks, left shark. Lefty shark. Yes. Yeah. Possibly did more to humanize sharks. Yes. I think than any other, uh, you know, pop culture version of sharks ever. I mean, the song Baby Shark, if anything, probably made more people hate sharks, uh, especially parents who had to listen to it. Uh, but yeah Le- left shark it was like wow this shark is kind of really incompetent and bad at its job
1: does everyone, everyone know what we're talking about yeah, yeah. the shark was going like okay uh,
0: if you youtube left shark yeah yeah it will uh, definitely come up and it was the wa- most watched Super Bowl halftime show in history wow 118 and a half million viewers wow in the United States so hopefully that did something for sharks
1: yeah 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 seven years ago well as we wrap up i just want to say if i could ask for a round of applause for associate professor david smith oh thank you